Well, it's so good to have Caitlin back with us. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Caitlin used to be our worship coordinator, and she uh, had to leave us to go to school in Hawaii to um, to learn um, about the mission field because, you know, her goal is one day to uh, use her gifts on the uh, mission field. So it's so great to have her here worshiping with us this morning. And welcome. Welcome to all of you who are uh, watching from home, and welcome to all of you who are coming to our initial outdoor service. So for those of you who are sitting outside, thank you so much for coming and welcome. Well, today is a very special day for me. And the reason today is special is because it's my 23rd wedding anniversary today. Yeah, all right. I've been married to a wonderful woman for 23 years. Wonderful years. And it's, it's amazing how you just see your relationship grow uh, from the time you were married to some of those rocky starts to the point where you can't imagine your life without your partner. Meaning, I cannot imagine my life without grace, you know, by my side. And so, you know, it's a, you know, it's a wonderful time for us to celebrate 23 years of God's goodness and faithfulness um, in our marriage. But, you know, as I um, work with uh, couples, you know, in premarital counseling, one thing that we talk about is the phrase, the honeymoon is over. The honeymoon is over. And most likely, in most couples, or practically all couples, you know, go through this. And it's not just couples, it's friendships, it's, you know, business partnerships and all of that. But it's mainly used for, you know, uh, married couples. But basically what happens is, you know, when you're first dating, you know, you first get married, oh, your partner could do no wrong. It's your prince charming. He's your prince charming. Then all of a sudden you get married and you walk in the house and you see clothesline there and you go, hey, you know what a hamper is? You know, and you start seeing all of these flaws in your partner, right? And they start to bother you. It's not like they were just new and they popped up and maybe we did a good job hiding them when we were in a relationship. But then you get to the point where the honeymoon's over. The honeymoon's over. And we all suffer and whether you, we all do, every human suffers from what we call the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error. And basically, what is this? Well, you know, we see this in married couples struggle with this, and individuals struggle with this. But basically, the fundamental attribution error is this. It's the tendency to judge a person in an unpleasant situation in a bad light, to attribute his or her behaviors to an internal qualities rather than understanding the circumstances or the situation that may have caused a person to act in this certain manner. It's kind of like when you're walking into a store or, you know, store and somebody bumps into you, right? What's the first thought that comes to your mind when somebody bumps into you, right? Was it like, man, this person's careless or why didn't they look where they were going? Or, man, doesn't this person know how to behave in public? And these are the thoughts and judgments that come to our mind in an unpleasant situation where we attach a person's internal characteristics or behavior to that um, very act. It's kind of like, you know, when you get married, right? And let's say, you know, things don't get done. You want things to get done. And you accuse your partner of, what well, you're lazy. 
or you're unorganized, or um, you're just so uncaring. And so when something goes wrong, when something doesn't happen the way you want it to happen, you start attacking or you're criticizing your partner's internal qualities rather than to try to understand, well, maybe there's a reason for them to be acting um, that way. It's called the cognitive bias or cognitive bias because we are all biased towards our situation. Because if you don't get things done, you don't call yourself lazy. Right? You don't say, oh, the reason I don't get things done is I'm just unorganized or I'm just an uncaring person and I really don't care about you know this person. No. When we don't get things done, we say that, well, you know, I had to work overtime this week and, and I'm really tired. Or I had a really stressful week. Or there were just certain things that happened to me this week that I couldn't account for. And so when we forget to do things, we look at ourselves in a positive light. But when other people do things, we look at them as they have some sort of personality flaw that caused them to behave in a certain way. Right? Because we all tend to look favorably on ourselves. And we do this in the political arena, too, where we generalize and we say, well, you know, all Democrats, they're immoral. They're immoral. And this is why I'm a Republican, because I'm a moral person, right? I'm a moral person. I'm not like those Democrats. Or, you know, Democrats are saying, well, all Republicans are heartless and selfish, right? And that's why I'm a Democrat, because I care about people. I care about the poor, and I care about the needy, right? But the problem with this cognitive bias is that you accuse a group of people based upon what you see, based upon what you hear, and based upon a stereotype. And the problem that we have here is that at Mission Valley, or in the body of Christ, we have Democrats and Republicans that make up a part of our body, right? And so when you say, well, all Democrats are evil, right? Are you saying that all the Democrats at Mission Valley are evil? Well, it's been my experience pastoring here for 12 years that that's not the case. Or, you know, for you Democrats, do you say that all Republicans are uncaring and don't have a heart? Well, you know, I know that your Republicans are at Mission Valley and I know that not to be true, right? And so that's the problem with this cognitive bias is when we take a look at a certain group's behavior and we attribute internal characteristics to that, we are also attacking people. We are attacking people in the body of Christ, whom the majority of the time, those characteristics are not true. We are just labeling them. And so as we continue our series called The Perfect Blend, between politics and religion, which is Andy Stanley's three-part series, which we've been following, which if you've heard this, um, his sermon, you're saying, oh, I've heard this before. And right, we are just going through his sermon series with, and I'm adding a little bit of my own personal touch to that. But this is our last um, uh, uh, sermon on this series. Why? Because we are a divided nation. We see division in the church, and it's getting more and more tense as we get closer to the election period. And 
This is not to be so. This is, we aren't supposed to be attacking one another in the body of Christ over a political platform or a political candidate, right? And so why don't we review? And one of the big things that, uh, big ideas is are we willing to put our faith filter ahead of our political filter? I mean, are we able to look at our, our, at our political values in light of our faith values? Meaning that we are Christians first. We are Christians first. And everything we do, everything we say, everything we value should come from that center. Not our political filter. But so many times we look at our faith through our political filter. Right? And we say, well, you know, if Jesus was here, he'd be a Democrat. Or if Jesus was here, he'd be a Republican because such and such and such and such. You know, and that's not true. That's not true. Okay? Second is the law of Christ needs to inform our conscience. Basically, as we look at, as we put our uh, faith filter before our political filter, and as we read the Word of God, as we walk with God over time, the law of Christ starts to inform our conscience, how we think. And then we should get disturbed or irritated by the things that go against Christ. You know, and both parties, believe it or not, have things that go against the law of Christ. Why? Because they are human institutions and and politicians are human, right? And so many times the kingdom of heaven is going to clash with the kingdom of this world. And so when they clash and we are putting our faith filter ahead of our political filter, we should be disturbed when we see things that go against the word of God. And these are not only sins of commission, meaning that you do this and you do that and you do this, right? But it's also the sins of omission, meaning that did you fail to love? Did you fail to care? Because a lot of times when we look at, we just take a look at sins of commission. Well, that person got drunk or that person swore or that person did this or that person did that. But we really don't look at the sins of when you saw a situation, and you didn't love, right? That's a sin of omission. When you come across a person that needs help, and for whatever reason you walk by and you didn't care, and you say, well, I didn't you know, commit any sin. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You didn't care about them. That is called a sin of omission. And then finally, we should be convicted. We should be convicted to do something about it. So when you take a look at this, when we take a look at um, as we walk closer and closer with Christ, our conscience is going to be inf- uh, uh, informed by the Holy Spirit. So what's the way forward? You know, when you see all of this tension. Well, last week we talked about, well, the first thing we need to do is listen. Because when things get heated in a political argument or debate or you're, you're fighting, the last thing you do is listen. You just want to win the argument. So you don't care what that person's saying. All you're thinking is, how do I defeat that person's argument, right? So we have to listen. This is where James 1.19 says, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. 
quick to listen, slow to speak. This is why my mom says, Dave, this is why God gave you two ears and one mouth. Because you know, we're supposed to listen. The second is we're supposed to learn. You know, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, the Apostle Paul says, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law as to win those not having the law. And what Paul is saying, that even though I'm Jewish, I'm going to become, I'm going to learn from the Gentiles so I can understand them and live among them. Why? For the purpose of winning as many of them to Christ as I can. And last week we talked about so many times our information comes from the same source. If you're conservative, all of your information comes from conservative websites, conservative news broadcasts, conservative media. And if you tend to be more to the left or liberal, that's where your information comes from liberal websites and all of that. So we get our information from one source. And I was even listening to a sports radio, and they were talking about this this past week, where they, the uh, sports um, news person was saying that, you know, he felt it was dangerous when people just get their information from one view. You know, especially when we talk about Facebook, right? For the most part, people in our Facebook are all, of, are all friends, and we tend to think alike. But if all of your information comes from people who think like you, there is a danger. And this is why we need to learn. We need to learn. We need to try to understand where the opposition is coming from, why they believe what they believe. Because once again, it's not like they're evil. There's a reason why they believe what they believe. We need to learn. And finally, we need to love. We need to love. To love God and your neighbor as yourself. Right? But the reason we're supposed to do this, if we do this, if the world sees us doing this, we start to change the world. We start to change the world like the 12 disciples did because people are watching. But right now, we're living, we're living in such a divisive and divided country. You know, how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to Galatians 3.28? Galatians 3.28. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. There is ne- neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is a male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? And so this brings me to my first point, is the church must reflect unity amongst its diversity. Okay, the church must reflect unity amongst its diversity. Because in this verse here, Paul is talking about the body of Christ. There's not Jew and Gentile. And for us, it may not be a big thing. But back then, it was huge. Where the Jews especially did not mix with the Gentiles. And so they worshipped in their temple. And it was just with them. But all of a sudden, Christ comes and he changes everything. He just doesn't change some things. He changes everything. And now they're called to worship together. And the Jews are saying, whoa, look at those Gentiles, man. You know, they don't care about God. They're not circumcised. They don't follow the law. And the Gentiles are saying, now we got to worship with these Jews. They have these funny dietary laws and they don't let their daughters date us. You know, what's going on with that? And he said, there's not slave nor free. And last week we were talking about slavery was very, very common in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't the slavery like we saw in the United States. It was more like 
um, they were servants. They were paid servants or employee. But back then, everybody, unless you were wealthy, there was a possibility of you becoming a slave. Because let's say you owed money to somebody and you couldn't pay it off. Well, it's like, okay, well, you, you need to pay it off or we'll put you in jail and I'm going to take your daughter. And she's going to be my slave or serve as my slave. So everyone was a potential slave. And there was a huge distinction between a free person and that of a slave. And then there was no, uh, there was, nor was a male or a female. Once again, the females in those days, the women in those times were not treated with dignity. And so here you sing all these different classes of people coming together and worshiping together in community, which was unheard of. And the reason uh, being is the Roman Empire emphasized or loved power and status. Power and status was highly valued in the Roman Empire. So you didn't mix classes. You didn't mix races. You didn't mix men and women. This was totally unheard of. But let's face it. You know, does this still go on today? Right? If it wasn't for the church, how many of you would hang out with a diverse group of people that we see in the church? Racially? Social economically? You know? Ethnically? How many would you hang out? But why? Because we tend to hang out with people just like us. But the church is supposed to reflect this unity of people who normally wouldn't be um, hanging out together, hanging out together and living as a loving community. And this, above all things, started threatening the Roman Empire because this is not supposed to happen. There's supposed to be a clear distinction between classes, between people. And the church is messing this up. And one Roman official wrote about the spread of Christianity, and this is what he said. I therefore postponed the investigation and hasten you to consult, hasten to consult you. For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because the number involved. Christianity was growing, and this Roman official was seeing that, and they didn't know what to do about this growing um, body of believers. And he continues to say, For many purpose, persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes will be endangered. And he's saying, you know, our whole system you know, of separating people, the wealthy and the poor, the, the social elite and those who, the unpopular, the slaves and free. This is all endangered because of what the Christians are doing. It says, for the contagion. <laughs> this is what they called the Christian, he called the Christian faith, the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. This one Roman official saw this. They saw what was going on in Galatians 3.28, and it started to undermine the Roman um, sense of society or the Roman culture. And he was saying, it's spreading not just to the city, it's spreading to the villages and the farms we need to do something about this.
Because we need to keep these classes and people separated. The poor don't deserve or belong to sit at the same table as the rich. The popular have no business associating with the unpopular. This is the way it's done. And the church is messing this up. Why? Because they valued unity among their culture. That Jesus Christ taught unity and not division. And because the Christians were living by the teachings of Jesus, they were threatening the Roman culture. Matthew eleven twenty two says, And from, the t- uh, from that time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. Now when you say, um, basically what he's saying is, Jesus is saying here is, if you want to follow the Lord, Jesus is demanding an earnest endeavor, untiring energy, and the utmost exertion, okay? Because why? Because Christians, we are to swim against the current of this world and to go against the grain, especially our adversary, Satan, his demons, and the world system is extremely powerful. And this is why um, Jesus is saying the kingdom has been forcefully advancing. And what? Violent people are attacking it. And one thing we learned um, last week was a quote from Tony Evans who said, Jesus did not come to take sides, he came to take over. Jesus did not come to take sides, he came to take over. Okay? Yet so many of us claim Jesus as our party's spokesperson. To the Democrats, Jesus and the Bible, they're our spokesperson and that's the way we live. To the Republicans, Jesus is our spokesperson, and the Bible gives us direction on how we are to live. Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. Because we to the next point. The church must be made up of kingdom people who, are, who passionately want to influence the world for Christ. The church must be made up of kingdom people, not politically minded people, not politically oriented people who passionately want to influence the world for Christ. You know, one thing that I really appreciate is when, you know, I go to these uh, retirement ceremonies of pastors and you take a look at them and a lot of people say, well, why aren't they so passionate? You know, why aren't they passionate? And I said, you know what? The fact that they are still standing, you should applaud that. The fact that they are able to retire after church ministry, you should applaud that. Because yes, in our younger day, we were passionate. We wanted to change the world. And over time, that passion is still there. But that journey is hard. And it costs something. Being a pastor isn't easy. Because they had to deal with, you know, decades of criticism. Decades of of fighting our adversary. Decades of trying to motivate people to Christ. Uh, You know, decades of having people talk bad about them and talk behind their backs. 
right? They had to endure their own personal sins, right? And, it, and they had to not only deal with their problems, but the problems of the people in the church. They had to walk with the church members through some of the most difficult times in their lives. And most individuals may do that with their family. But pastors, we have to do it for our whole congregation, right? So the fact that they're still standing at the end of their career, they should be applauded. But make no mistake that they are still passionate. Because why? They spent their whole career wanting to influence the world for Christ. And that does cost you. That will take a toll on you. Yes, we could do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Yes, when we are weak, we are strong. But passionately trying to influence the world is difficult. It's difficult. And not only for pastors, but for all of you seniors who have walked with Christ your entire life. And you have sought to influence the world around you. You need to be praised also. And for you young people, we need to look up to them and learn the lessons that they learn in order to help us live the life that Christ wanted us to live. Once again, the Roman leadership saw Christianity as a threat. And 45 years after the execution of the Apostle Paul, the church was still spreading like wildfire. And Pliny the Younger was a governor of the area which is known as Turkey. And he was a good friend of Emperor Trajan. And he wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan to, to get his advice on how do you stop the spread of Christianity because Christians don't practice or participate in the Roman worship uh, rituals. And so Pliny the Younger conducting an investigation of Christians who recanted their faith, right? Of Christians who recanted their faith. Because one of the things Emperor Trajan said was, okay, don't actually go after the Christians. Just go after the ones who are stubborn. Go after the ones that you see as a threat. But Emperor Trajan said, for those Christians who recanted their faith, They are not to be imprisoned, or they are not to be punished. But this is what Pliny the Younger, in his letter, said to Trajan. And the sum of the substance of their fault and error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. And so what he's saying, the sum of the substance of their fault, meaning Christians who said, okay, I am no longer a Christian, but this was, okay, This you're charging me, you're trying to round me up and throw me in prison? Well, this is why you're doing it, or this is why you try to do it, is one, we were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. And pretty much they met on Sunday at dawn to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Now, Sunday was a work day. So they were not um, creating a problem or they didn't disrupt uh, the Roman business culture. Why? Because they met before the start of work, right? I mean, how many of us would do that on a Monday saying, okay, we're going to get together and and, in order for me to still continue to go to work and not be disrupted there, we're going to meet at 5 o'clock in the morning. 
on a Monday morning. How many of us would do that? But that's what they were doing. And he goes on to say, and to sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God and bind themselves by oath, not to a crime. So he was saying, well, they, the problem was Christians, but they bind themselves to an oath. And so what's this oath that they're talking about? Is it an oath to say that I'm going to overthrow the Roman government? I'm going to make sure there are justice for all of us? Is that the oath that they were binding themselves to? No, he continues. The oath was not to bind themselves to a crime, but it was but not to commit fraud, theft, adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do, do, do so. Basically what he was saying, these Christians are taking an oath not to treat, not to cheat one another, and not to deal with them businessly or personally, dishonestly. I mean that we are going to treat everybody honestly. You know, we're not going to, they're taking an oath, we're not going to steal from each other. They're taking an oath that they will remain faithful to their spouses. And they're taking an oath that they will keep their promises. And if somebody else needs help, that they would be there to help them. This is the oath that they were needed, that they were taken. And it's kind of like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Remember that story, you know, about Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector, and tax collectors were hated among the Roman Empire because they would collect the Roman government's share of taxes. Then above that, they could take whatever they wanted from the individual to put into their own pockets. So many times they were greedy. So tax collectors were just hated. They were hated by everyone. But there was a tax collector who wanted to hear about Jesus, and he became a Christian. And basically what he said um, is that he would give half his possessions to the poor. When he became a disciple of Jesus Christ, it changed him. And then he also said, if I had cheated anybody, I would repay them four times what I cheated them, right? Could you imagine the disruption that would be to all of the other tax collectors when the people who hate them are taking a look at them? Why can't you be like Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus cheated us, and he gave us four times what he cheated us on, right? You can imagine the disruption that that was causing. But you know what? Christians were changing the Roman Empire by the way that they were acting. They were making a difference by the way they lived their lives. And they were making a difference, not through coercion or power, which are the tactics that the Roman Empire used. They were making a change by following the teachings of Jesus. And this is why it's so foolish for us, for the church, to fight about politics. Because political leaders and platforms are just temporary. Laws come into existence and laws change. It's been over 2,000 years, though, and Jesus is still sitting on the throne. And Paul tells us why we are to act in a certain way. In Galatians 6, 2, it says, Carry each other's burdens, and that way you are to fulfill the law of um, Christ. And the world was taking notice 
because Christians were carrying each other's burdens. Not only the burdens of those people in the same social class, but everybody, the rich, the poor, the socially connected, and the unpopular. And this is why Jesus is the only hope for our nation, not politicians, because we see this happening in the Roman Empire. In Galatians 6, 7, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And basically what Paul is saying is we reap what we sow. And he's saying if within the church, if we fight and argue about politics, if we tear down our brothers and sisters because we are putting our political filter ahead of our faith filter, that leads to what? Destruction. That leads to destruction, especially in the local church. Right? Jesus promised that his universal church would not the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the local church, if we continue to bicker and fight, it could end that church. Because nothing spiritually good comes from fighting one another and tearing each other down. Once again, nothing spiritually good comes from fighting with one another and tearing each other down. Especially in the season as we get closer to the election. And in um, 6, 9, he says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And this is where we'll close here. As a church... We must do good to others regardless of our political difference. As a church, we must do good to others regardless of our political difference. Why? Because the world is watching us. We saw the Christians change the most oppressive government at that time. And one of the most oppressive governments in the history of the world with what power with revolution no they changed their roman empire by living out the teachings of jesus christ and if they could do it you know we could do it you know one thing that i enjoyed doing when i was in the workforce before Um, becoming a pastor, is that I saw every place I went as a place to take Jesus. No, my faith wasn't operating just on Sunday. I just didn't live out my faith when I went to Bible study. I didn't live out my faith just when I went and did ministry. No, I saw each place that I was at a place to influence the world for Christ. And as a manager, I led with Christian values. And it's amazing, it's amazing how you can change a culture of a group, of a department, and a company. By what? Living as a believer. 
You know, brothers and sisters, changing the world isn't complicated. It really isn't. We make it so complicated in how we are to change and win this world. What we're supposed to do is just make disciples of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? We just need to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you live as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will change the world around you. And that's how we do it. One believer at a time. When one believer stands up and says, I am going to make a difference in the world around me by living the way that Christ led. Living the way Christ taught me. I'm going to change the world around me. And as a church, the church becomes a powerful force when you have its members who all in unity, regardless of status, regardless of class, come together and say, we are all going to corporately live as disciples of Jesus Christ. Our world will start to change. Like I said, the early Christians did that to the point where the Roman government didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do because it was spreading like wildfire. And if they could do it, we could do it. So what's our weekly challenge? Well, our weekly challenge is I'd like us to read Galatians 3, 23 through 29, and 6, 2 through 7. Uh, sorry, Galatians 6, 2, 7 through 10 daily. And I want you to ask yourself this question. When it comes to politics, do you see yourself more as more disruptive or unifying? When you are engaged in a, a political conversation, do you see yourself as more disruptive or more unifying? And as what is something you can do or not do to approach political a political conversation in a more healthy way. You know, for some of you who use social media, maybe you could take a look at what you're writing and pray over what you're going to post to say, Jesus, you know, this post, would this edify you? Would this glorify you? Or would this bring shame to you? Right? And that's one thing you could do. Before you post anything, pray about it and ask, would these words edify the body of Christ? Would they edify Christ or tear down the body of Christ? Try that. Right? Try that. But do something. Do something. And then as you start obeying the word of God, the Holy Spirit starts to inform your conscience and you start living as Jesus wants you to live. You start to become more like Jesus. And when you do, when I do, when we all do, this is how we'll change the world. Let's pray. And the worship team, please come forward. Gracious Heavenly Father, I know so many of us have a cognitive bias. Well, we tend to look at others behaviors, and we attribute it to some sort of shortcoming in their personality. But when it comes to us, there are all kinds of reasons or situations that caused us to behave in a certain manner.
And so, Father, as we get closer to this election, Father, may we as your church be your light. Father, may we listen, may we learn, and may we love like you loved, Father. Father, I know it's not easy, for we are going against a powerful enemy and a powerful world system. But Father, this is why you said your kingdom is forcefully taking over. That in order for us to make a difference in this world, we need to be passionate about changing this world. We need to be passionate about bringing Christ into our workplaces, into our families, and to our social relationships. Right now, as Caitlin's praying, I'd like to th- you to all reflect and take a moment on are you making the places where you work, live, and socialize a better place for Christ? Is your work a better place because you, as a representative of Jesus Christ, is employed there? I want you to think about that. And are you making a difference in the places where you live? Father, this world system that we live in could somehow feel like a black hole. We're just, we're, we're being sucked into it. And Father, we come to you this morning and ask for your forgiveness where we were not passionate about influencing this world for you, where we were more passionate or more concerned about our political worldview, where we were more passionate and concerned about our financial status or our future than to be about influencing the world for you. And Father, we repent of that this morning. And from this day on, Father, we choose to make a difference in the world we live by living as your disciple, by passionately and intentionally trying to influence this world for you. Not being obnoxious about it, but to be loving about it, to be kind and caring and patient, to be in self-control. That's how we'll do it. Dear Jesus, thank you that you are the perfect example for us. That you created a church that's made up of diverse people from all different racial and ethnic backgrounds and cultures and people from different economic um, backgrounds that you all brought us together as one. And Father, I pray that minimally at this church that those walls that separate people out in the world will be torn down here at Mission Valley and there will be no walls between people because Father we are all one in Christ Jesus and Father you've given us as 
a corporate entity as a church to influence our community and our world for you. So, Father, I pray for each person who calls Mission Valley home. Father, that they would passionately want to be a part of the work here so we could influence the world for you. And to not sit on the sidelines anymore, but to become active. And yes, Lord, it's going to cost us something. Yes, there are going to be battle scars when we're ready to retire. But Father, it is so worth it to put our lives on the line for you. The early church did it, and the church thrived. And we have no excuse. Because the same Holy Spirit that impassioned and strengthened and emboldened them is the same Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts today. Father, please use us to make a difference in our world today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.